the level of support, being good colleagues, again, valuing people as whole human beings mm-hmm. is like unparalleled. And I just feel like we are, that is a really unique characteristic of where we live and work. Um, and I, it just, I think it makes work here just amazing. I, mean, I feel like we're so lucky to work in an environment where we get supported truly to be in amazing researchers and teachers and clinicians, but that is not where the support stops. And so that's my, I feel like I just, I'm so grateful for my colleagues in the department and the college for that approach. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. Today, we've got a colleague from Human Development and Family Studies, Dr. Rachel Lucas Thompson. Rachel, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. We're delighted you could join us. We know that um, the life of an academic is keeping many plates spinning, and so mm-hmm. we're glad that we could carve out a little bit of time to have you come join us. Yeah, my pleasure. So we want to start by getting to know a little bit about your, your current academic work, and we will circle back to this by the time we close. We'll, we'll take a little divergent pathway into family <laughs> and your educational pathway, et cetera. But uh, we want to talk about the, the big problems that you and your team collaborators pursue as a scholar here at CSU. Um, so my research, and I've, there have been different foci across the years, exactly what I'm really interested in or thinking about at any given time. But the theme across it is really adolescent stress mm-hmm. and the effects that stress has on adolescent mental health. And so there's some really alarming data over the last decade or so about how much more stressed out teens are than they've ever been before. So, for instance, in like the, you know, I think 2014, 2015, there was some new data out that for the first time ever, teens were reporting equal or even higher levels of stress than adults. So it always used to be, of course, there's a lot going on in adolescence, but adulthood, of course, was more more stressful than adolescence. And so we know so much about the ways that stressful experiences and stress are harmful for adolescents because of the brain changes that are happening, the body changes that are happening. So they're really susceptible to those effects. So these like dramatic increases are really scary Mm. Um, and probably linked to a lot of the things that are getting national attention, local attention, like Colorado had a huge spike in um, suicidality in adolescents and, um, and stress is likely one of those big factors. So I'm really interested in understanding what can we do to help teens who are experiencing stress? How can we empower them to handle those stressors better? And so there are kind of broadly, some of that is really the understanding piece. So just like, can we understand what's stressful for teens? Um, What are some of those core stressors? So a lot of my research is focused on family relationships as a potential source of stress or support. Um, But then also, how can we intervene um, to directly equip teens with skills to buffer themselves from the effects of stress. So I've done a lot on um, more recently on mindfulness-based interventions as a way to, to equip teens with the skills they need to deal with those stressful things that they're dealing with all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's two common points of discussion that I'm interested in your thoughts mm-hmm. about as an expert in this area. One is the influence of social media. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always interested in, is that a platform for trouble? Is it a platform for good, healthy communities? Is it both? And it depends on a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, I mean, I definitely land on the both. Um, and I think where this also connects, so some of what 
um, we're doing is so mindfulness based interventions we know in general are effective, um, but there's some room for improvement for strengthening the effects of those interventions. And one of the ways, and this will connect to your question, um, feels like I'm going off on a tangent, but um, um, one of the ways that they they don't do quite as much as they should is really supporting anybody, but teens in particular, from taking what they learn in a group program and actually using it in their daily lives. So any of us who've done any learning, like we've tried a new diet, we've tried a new exercise, you know, it's like hard, it's hard to make those habits. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've actually argued, this isn't social media specifically, but techno- technology more broadly, that we can really harness the the influence of technology in adolescents' lives to help them engage in that process that we call skill transfer, taking what they learn in a group program to and applying it to their daily lives, especially during stress. Because of course that group programs, usually those are not stressful. What we need to do is support teens when they're actually mm. um, fighting with a friend at school or like they've gotten a got bad grade on a test and they don't know how to handle it. Um, so that's part of the reason I land on the both. And we've given a lot of thought to that. Like we we think about our cell phones in particular as mindless we often use it mindlessly, frankly, like we're just scrolling or we're um, we're using it to remove ourselves from wherever we are currently. Um, but can we harness that mm-hmm. evil for good and actually teens are on their phones all the time? Can we actually use that as an opportunity to remind them, like, why don't you stay rooted to the current moment? Mm. Pay attention to your body and your breath. Um, and can you use some of those mindfulness skills that you've learned? Here's what they are. And here's how you might use them right now. So that's part of the reason I land on the both is that it can do a lot of harm, but maybe we actually can can accept the influence that these tools have in our lives now and try and use those to to make our interventions more effective. And there's a degree of realism there, it seems to me, because they're simply not going to go away. So mm-hmm. we can stick our heads in the sand or, or stomp our feet all we want. But the more prudent approach seems to me to say, okay, how can we leverage that as a constructive tool. Yeah. Leverage it and be aware of here are the downsides. Right. Mm. Uh, But how can we try and overcome some of those and use these as helpful strategies instead of just harmful? Well said. My second question is the more recent one, and this is the impact of COVID-19 and Mm. lockdowns on on adolescent mental health. And, And how has that impacted you and your approach to the questions you asked? Um, I think, you know, really, um, We've, we've had a couple of opportunities to leverage some larger studies that were ongoing to actually directly study the effects of uh, the our stress, and of course, not the like physical effects of sure. COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like have tried to take advantage of those. Um, we don't, luckily, we don't have very many naturally occurring large-scale stressors that we can um, try and understand the effects of those on teens. But I think um, really interested in particular in family relationships as a buffer, especially during the initial phases of lockdown, like that positive supportive family relationships have the potential to have really buffered some teens. Of course, stressful family relationships then likely exacerbated the effects of lockdown because they were around each other all the time, not as many we got a lot of cutoff from social support. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've tried to take advantage of some um, larger ongoing projects that we had at the time to to investigate some of those things. Like we had, we did find some evidence um, that high quality uh, relationships with parents, in particular, actually did buffer some of the negative effects of stress on mental health during the early phases of the pandemic. Um, I mean, I think more broadly, like we've all, I think for all of us, it's force us to think, rethink the way we do things more broadly, like maybe not the research, the exact topic of our research, but just the ways that we conduct it and the ways that we work together. Yeah. Um, 
that's been it's uh, interesting. interesting. And yeah. you got my wheels turning. You can probably see by the look on my face. You know, I'm again, perhaps not an easy question to answer, but I'm interested in your thoughts in terms of lessons learned from COVID. Are, has it introduced us to new things or is it reinforcing some things we already knew and maybe they're even more important than we, we thought they were in terms yeah. of, again, adolescent mental health? That's a great question. I mean, I think that one of the things that um, occurs to me that is more along the, line, lo- along the lines of new things is that we we found some evidence that some of the teens that we are working with, in particular through a mentoring program that's hosted here at CSU called Campus Connections, we were doing a larger project with them. And then um, at, for the few months before that semester before COVID hit and then continued it once um, in the first four to six months of the pandemic. And we actually found that they were doing pretty well. And this is a really high risk sample of teens. And so that was actually some new information. I think everybody um, was appropriately concerned. Sure. And there are there were a lot of ways that adolescent mental health on average took a real hit. Um, but some evidence to suggest that like some of the programming that was happening that we were offering here seemed like it might have been really helping in these early stages of like global stress mm-hmm. um, that some of those teens were actually improving um, in ways that we didn't expect as opposed to showing like major um, detriments to their mental health. So I think that's, of course, it was a small sample is just here at CSU, but I felt like we, we took that as a sign of optimism, like that there, there are some of these tools that we're implementing can, can really help like that. I feel like we, we hope that they do and we find evidence that they do, but, um, that was really, that, that was really reassuring, especially I think we, we first started doing some of those analyses in like September of 2020. So we were all really in it and worried we were going to see these teens just doing terribly and said some evidence like there there are some teens who are weathering this in part because of their social supports whether that's family whether that's something like a mentoring program whether it's something like a mindfulness-based intervention that these this is a time that was a time and continues to be time that that these resources are really needed and seem to actually be helping right i'm interested in your pathway and this can go as far back as you like and and we may push you a little bit in, in certain directions, but you know, prior to you starting college, mm-hmm. where did you grow up? Family influences, et cetera. What made you pursue the degree that you pursued as an undergraduate? And we'll get to, to grad school and in, in the order of things. Yeah. I grew up in Chicago. Okay. Um, and I was the child of two academics. Okay. So my dad has a um, doctoral degree in choral music and was a and is, and is a musician. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then my mom was a faculty member in uh, sociology and women's studies. Okay, great. So I was a faculty brat. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I think I did I had the benefit then, especially ending up as a faculty member, seeing pretty early on, like I helped grade extra credit quizzes for my mom's students. And I thought it was so exciting now. I'm like, that's a great idea. I need to figure out how to <laughs> have my almost eight-year-old help with that. Um, but got to visit the university and um, see them teach classes and meet their students. And I was interested pretty early on in theater. Mm. And my dad got me an audition and I was like child number three in a university level acting opportunity right as on. a young kid. Um, so it was, um, and it was a, uh, it was a really interesting school to observe, a really diverse student body um, and a lot of non-traditional students. And so I feel like my first exposure to university life was not your traditional sure, yeah. um, one. So yeah, I, I went to 
I don't remember when I got interested. I'm a developmental psychologist by right. training. And for a while thought I might be interested in becoming a psychiatrist based mm-hmm. on my understanding. I was really interested in the idea of talk therapy. I didn't really understand that wasn't, that wasn't what psychiatrists did. <laughs> but so went to college with a double major in theater and um, biology at first and then realized I didn't actually want to go to med school. That wasn't like I didn't I wasn't interested in being a psychiatrist, which I learned more about like the prescription element wasn't what I was sure interested in. But so then switched to psychology and so um majored in theater and psych. Now where where did you get your undergraduate degree? Beloit College. Okay. And tell us where that's at for our listeners. So it is um just over the border of Illinois and Wisconsin Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, very small liberal arts college. Um, Incredibly valuable. I absolutely loved being there. I went to, uh, so in Chicago, um, the public schools are very, very large. And I went to an elementary school where um, the year ahead of me, when I was in seventh grade, the eighth grade class had four students. So it was incredibly small and we were all very close. Mm-hmm. It meant that we got a lot of really tailored support, like whatever, wherever, whatever level you were at, they could provide you with that instead of being more rigid, like right. grade-based. Um, but so I was terrified about the idea of going to a huge high school. Like that just, I was like, I mean, I've been a big fish in a little pond. I can't, I can't be a teeny tiny fish. So I, um, the op- most of the private schools then are religious. My family was not religious growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a big culture shock for me. And I never felt like then I quite fit in. I found my group and my theater kids, but then I went to an incredibly liberal college that felt like just a breath of fresh air where I really mm-hmm. found my people and had just amazing mentors um, who we got to know really personally, really small classes, lots of great That's writing so support. Great, yeah. yeah, it was a it was a really, really valuable undergrad experience. Now, was there a, a moment or, or a period of time in your undergrad where the, the grad school light bulb sort of came on in your head? Was it you or was it a, a professor? Was it a, what does one do after you know earning a degree, a dual degree? I don't remember. I think I always knew I would go on to get some sort of, always knew, of course, at some time I had to have that realization, sure. but it felt like um, it never felt like a light bulb moment. It just kind of felt like, oh, I'm going to do something. It's just, what am I going to do? What? And uh, both my parents had doctorates. So I think that was part of it. Sure. Of thinking like, well, that's this is what one does. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'll do. I'll do. I just don't know whether what direction I'll go in. So I feel like I was I was thinking about that pretty early on. And so you know, you wrap up your undergraduate degree. I have to ask you, by the way, do you have any theater productions that are particularly memorable from your time as as a, an undergrad? The Cripple of Inishman ah. was, um, we had to learn Irish accents. We had to learn Irish accents to, uh, don't ask me to do one, please. This is not, a, this is not like me angling <laughs> for you to ask me to do one, and I will not. But um, we had to learn them for the audition uh-huh. and then use them. And I started to dream in an Irish accent. No kidding. Wow. That's it went away pretty quickly. But it just, we used it. We were rehearsing for hours every day. Um, and so I was, that was, that was an interesting experience. I should really say fun. so. Yeah. Um, that was one of my, one of my favorites, but it was a great, um, the classes I feel like were even, or that we, it was, it ended up being pretty much a cohort model where we all took acting 101 our first semester and then took all the same classes for the next four years. Sure. Nice. Um, so that was just, that was as impactful as any of the individual productions. Oh, that's, yeah. How yeah. cool. So a uh, master's degree. Um, I did a combined master's and PhD. Great. Um, well, 
uh, technically are my master's. not in Wisconsin. Not in Wisconsin, in Southern (laughs) California. I walked out my senior year. I had submitted all of my applications across the country to go to grad school. And I had to run to class after I took a shower. And I stepped outside and I heard my hair freeze. Oh, my And I said... I think I'm done. I think I'm done with the cold weather for a little bit. I think I'd like a break. Um, And so, um, not surprisingly, I ended up in California. Irvine. Um, Yeah, Southern California, Irvine. Yeah, I did an honors thesis um, as an undergrad that connected. I worked doing therapy with kids with autism. Mm -hmm. I'm doing ABA therapy. Um, And I learned very quickly in that that I was not interested in what we would call abnormal development um and or at least we did at the time and was really interested in more normative um developmental issues and so i had been considering doing clinical programs or more research-based programs i i tacked on a little research project that again was connected to that experience as a therapist but that was really transformative. i was like i'm, re- I'm really not interested in and in doing therapy with people who are struggling i'm sure. interested in understanding kind of some of these um, normative processes, which of course now I'm studying mental health and I'm studying stress, but those are, those are quite normative, um, uh, mental health problems in adolescence, unfortunately. But so that was really, that was a turning point for me in terms of whether I wanted to do clinical work or research and then loved, I, I, I took advantage of all the research experiences I could as an undergrad, uh, but small liberal arts college that was, the faculty were primarily teaching focused, though there weren't a ton of opportunities. I was doing some research. I wasn't actually all that interested and I just wanted some skills. So getting to grad school was really exciting to like now I can really do research and what I'm interested in it. And the model at UCI was similar to our department um, where you weren't accepted to work with an individual faculty member. You were accepted to the department, which meant very early on I identified two different mentors and was able to kind of find the the Venn diagram overlap of what I was interested in, but pull unique things from the two of them and then eventually a third person um, as well. And so I felt... Like I be I, I I had support to be a unique sci- budding scientist very very early on, which sure. I think has really shaped the way I mentor my students too. Um, there are a lot of places where the idea like you're just kind of a mini version of your mentor yes, right. um, for all of grad school, and then maybe mm-hmm. once you get to a postdoc, that's when you can start to craft your unique identity. Um, and so that was. That was really impactful. And then had two mentors who were incredibly different from each other in every possible way in terms – well, their research was about families broadly. But that was also really helpful too. Like who do I who do I want to be as a mentor? I'm experiencing these different types of teaching and mentorship and, and how do I want to be? Um, so it was a really – I'm I'm so grateful for that experience. That that was pretty unique, I think. That sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So questions you started pursuing with a little more rigor as a as a graduate student. I started. Um, I my undergraduate mentor, who I was who I absolutely loved, studied attachment security, okay. parent infant attachment security. Yeah. And I was really interested in interparental romantic relationships, but as a predictor of attachment. So that was what my master's thesis was on. That's where I started. And then continued, have really continued thinking about um, for adolescents that those, that the relationships between their parents are very robust sources of stress or support. Um, So that theme continued, but was interested less in attachment security and more about mental health and then thinking really about 
stress. So that was kind of post-masters that I was really interested in stress. Interesting. Now, how long were you at Irvine? I was there five years. Okay. Uh, have to ask you the hair freezing example. <laughs> how did you find Southern California after growing up in the upper Midwest? I loved living there in my <laughs> mid-20s. So uh-huh. I highly recommend <laughs> for anyone who's grown up yeah. on the Midwest or East Coast. Right? Yeah, get, get, get West. Um, I... But I very quickly realized like that it wasn't a place I'd want to stay. In particular, knew I wanted to have children. And I just kept thinking, I was like, this is not a – I don't know there are going to be people who listen who've grown up in California and said, we did just fine. But I just I was like, kids need to see that there are four seasons. Like the world isn't always sunny. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I knew I didn't want to stay, but I absolutely loved living there. It was also very expensive. And so that's part of it. I wanted to live in a place where I could – eventually own a home and um, feel a little bit less financially strapped. But it is a gorgeous place to live, to be able to drive and get to the ocean in about 10 minutes was – there were lots of time. I need a little bit of break from the stress of grad school and go sit on the beach and feel the sand in between your toes. That's, yeah, there are some advantages, huh? There are a lot of advantages, <laughs> yeah. So you wrap up your dissertation. What, what comes next? I would have been interested in teaching throughout both my parents were really phenomenal teachers and as well as other things. But and then I had these great teachers as uh, when I was an undergrad and really wanted to be a part of a high quality institution that supports undergraduate learning and um, but also wanted to do research. So I knew when I was finishing grad school that I was like, what I want is a job that's 50-50, where I'm really high quality teaching is valued, but I have an opportunity to do research. And so I applied with those types of jobs in mind and ended up getting a faculty position at McAllister College, which is a small liberal arts college in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And so was there for three years. Um, I met my husband at UCI, who is also in the same program. Um, he's a health psychologist. And so we finished at the same time and we're navigating that, like, how are we going to – we got married about six months before we finished our PhDs. And so we were on the job market. In fact, did phone interviews on our honeymoon. Like, that oh, was how wow. it all overlapped oh, yeah. and managed to both find jobs mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities. Um, and I that job was phenomenal. The students are amazing. The faculty were amazing. It was um, such a great stepping stone. I had a lot of support to do research. And then the the teaching – Um, with students was just a dream. Mm -hmm. Um, But I found that to do the as much research as I wanted to do, I needed to be working a lot more than I wanted to be working. Um, And especially studying families, nights and weekends were like all taken up with. I had great undergraduate research assistants who are amazing, but I needed to be really hands-on, which I was fine with, but it just meant it was was a lot. And so... um, my husband was in a what we'd call a soft money position. Um, so after a couple of years, he needed to um, write grants to fund himself. And he didn't want to do that in the long term either. So we decided for both of us, it was a good opportunity to to try and find um, tenure track positions that were not soft money and that would provided more research support. Mm-hmm. And so we crossed our fingers and toes and <laughs> like put everything out and um, CSU was where we ended up. And I still, I like pinched myself all the time that this is, this is where we ended up because it's such a great fit for both of us. Yeah. It's a great environment for sure. So mm-hmm. you both arrived at CSU when? 2012. 2012. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, so over a decade now. Yeah. Exactly. Just over. You yeah. Your eyes, I'm waiting. Right? I'm going to get the little tag on my door. Someone <laughs> in our college puts a yeah. little, like, congratulations. You've been yeah. here 10, 10 years. I haven't got mine quite yet, but I'm 
That's coming. Fun. That's awesome. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, the work you do here has been supported by a variety of different funding agencies, mm-hmm. including a Career Development Award from the National Institutes of Health. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, who funds me, what, what am I doing now as, as an associate professor here uh, at CSU, and do you collaborate with your husband? We have collaborated. Okay, We've had some foundation funding to support some collaborative work around so he's interested in uh, healthy eating and physical activity, uh, but some developmental questions related to that. So we've collaborated around those with this broader interest and in how do we promote health and thinking about um, family relationships again as a way to support or or not support health. Um, so we've collaborated, um, have a lot of great collaborators in the department too. That was a um, where I at at McAllister College, I was the only developmental psychologist. So there was kind of one psychologist in um, each of the different areas and social and clinical, which was great. But it's also really wonderful to be in a department with not that everyone is a developmental psychologist, but everyone really interested in development, interested in families to some extent. So I have a lot of great collaborators there. And it was really when I came, I think even in my job talk here, I identified as my key future direction moving from the I was doing a lot of the understanding work, the more observational, just like how is it that families and stress and mental health are related in adolescence, and that I really wanted to transition to more prevention and intervention, which is a real strength of our department. That's mm-hmm. another reason it was a great fit. And so that's been, since I got here, really the the direction um, I wanted to grow in, which is that what that Career Development Award supported really was a shift from more observational work to, to intervention. Mm-hmm. And so... That's what I've spent the last six so years doing. And uh, you have a team, right? You you've mm-hmm. already hinted at, at mentoring. So yes, tell us about your trainees and your team, and what uh, you always ask a sort of a day in the life. Understanding, mm-hmm. of course, that there's enough variation that there is no such thing as a right. typical, <laughs> typical day, day, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but talk to us a little bit about your team, and again, feel free to name names and, mm-hmm. and pat uh, yeah. you know Dean's fellows on the back <laughs> or whoever you would like, or, or of course you've got several. F31s, right? Mm-hmm. These are pre-doc fellowships from yeah. the National Institutes of Health that have been mentored by you. So talk to us about your team. So I have a pretty uh, big team, at least for our department of graduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I have eight um, PhD students are at different levels. That's a big team. Um, yeah. Yeah. And mentoring is really one of my very favorite parts of the job. Um, and I feel like we have such phenomenal students who bring diverse experiences and interests and ask great questions and really enrich and inform the research that we do. Um, And it's just an absolutely great group of people. We, um, in our lab meeting yesterday, took our annual lab photo and I laughed so hard. Like it's just a group of people that I also really enjoy being around. So it feels, it's just lovely to have a large group that you respect and enjoy. Like my week, we have, most of us have we meetings every other week and like I look forward to them to just sure. sit and catch yeah. up and chat um, with each of the students. But yes, yeah, so they also have been very successful, um, have had um, a Dean's Fellow who then translated that into an H funding um, and is on the job market now and doing very well. Way to go, Reagan Miller. Um, <laughs> and it's just awesome. And uh, have a student who who finished last year, Tasha Sider, who also had an F31 and is doing amazing clinical work, is really um, devoted to that right now, but is really staying connected in some ways to the research that's happening. Um, and I feel like now I have to name everyone because they're all amazing. Well, that would just turn into a laundry list. But really, they are, um, they're all doing and developing really great work. And I think supporting the next 
generation of scholars is just one of the most exciting things we get to do. I think it can be easy, even when we're doing really applied work, it can be really easy on those darker days, feel like, man, this is a, this can be a bit, there, there are parts of it that are a real grind and like, is, and what I doing really matters. Like, am I really making a difference? I think that's most of us want to. And sure. I feel like that is a way that I can always stay connected to making some difference. Like these are people who are going to go on, whether they're doing research, whether they're teaching, whether they're going to be clinicians, like they are going to make the world a better place. And I'm having some role in supporting that trajectory. And so that I feel like it's helps on those days. It's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. 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 On those days when recruitment isn't going so well or it was more committee meetings than <laughs> um, writing or something. I feel right. like that's a that's a good reminder. The warp and woof is never quite the same. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> How about key collaborators? And again, you're welcome to name drop. Um, my, I would say I work most clo- closely with Lauren Shoemaker, who's in our department, who has a track record of publications and funding that is enviable for mm-hmm. anyone. Yes. Absolutely. But also like the, such a generous, um, wonderful peer mentor. Um, and so again, feeling like really grateful to have collaborators who I, I look forward to our meetings, not just to talk about research, but to connect Personally, I think this is you know, one of my very favorite things about this department and this college. It feels like we really care about each other as people and not just as cogs and some machine who need to be productive. But like, yes, we all want to be productive and do amazing work, but we want to be happy, healthy people and connect to each other on a personal level. And it feels like that. I really get that in that collaboration. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Yeah. I want you to expand, <laughs> but it's that I always like to hear it more than once, right? Yeah. So, I want you to, to cast us a vision for the next five to 10 years in terms of your research program, mm-hmm. questions you're pursuing, goals or aspirations. Wouldn't it be cool if, you know, at the end of yeah. five or 10 years? Um, so I, um, the the career development award wrapped over the summer. Right. I mean, technically I have a no cost extension, but we're just wrapping a few things up. So that kind of felt like a a, a chapter closed a little bit over the summer. So it's a good time to be thinking about those next phases. Um, And I think I'm just really excited to do more work about intervention and prevention, because I I started on that later in my trajectory than some of my colleagues who are such amazing prevention and intervention researchers. So I feel like I've just got a lot of room to grow at this stage, which I think is exciting. I think this is a stage of career where we often can feel a bit stagnant and Mm -hmm. that I I get that, Um, but that I feel like I have some energy around making a turn um, just a few years ago. And so I think really trying to better understanding it, going back to that question, like what can we do to better support? We're doing a lot. We know a lot about ways to support teens to cope with stress and promote their mental health. What can we do as researchers to strengthen the effects of those interventions? And in particular, in high moments of stress, how can we help teens in those moments that are crucial um, for coping and for long-term mental health, how can we better support teens? And so I feel like that that broad question, I think, will really guide the next five to 10 years. And grant proposals that are in review or NOAAs that you've received about upcoming funding, anything along those lines to pursue these questions? So um, hopefully later today, we'll have finalized and sent um, an R01 that's specifically asking some of these questions in... um, college students across the country at at four different sites. Um, So whether college students are considered adolescents is a 
uh, area of debate, but many of them are what we would call emerging adults. And some, uh, many developmental scholars define adolescence as 10 to 25, like a pretty broad window. So many, what we'd call traditionally aged college students are, you know, their brains have not completely finished developing um, and uh, have many of the markers of what we would think of as um, adolescence. So, uh, and an incredibly high risk population um, in terms of mental health. Anybody, of course, who works on a campus um, knows about the, the sure. real challenges that um, that university students have faced, even more so than many other people of the same age who are not enrolled um, in universities, who, of course, have separate challenges. But it is, for mental health, it's a really um, high-risk group. And so using some of these tools, like how can we can we develop some of these tools to better support college and university students in high moments of stress? So that's what that grant is about. That man, I'm excited. That would be with collaborators in Denver and in Minnesota, McAllister College, including oh, using well, some of those, but then also that's the great. University of Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so excited to do some more like, uh, multi-site work. And the Career Development Award did a lot of development around some of these tools, technological tools to support um, teens in high moments of stress. Um, and so I hope the next, I think the next grant applications will really support the testing of it beyond the development. Fantastic. So, so when we think about mindfulness, mm-hmm. what does that really mean? That's a great question. And it's a I, um, you different people will give you different answers. And okay. it's actually one of the really interesting um, – a bunch of my students just went to um, an inaugural conference um, in contemplative research, and we had one of them reported back to the group yesterday um, about it. Uh, and that was one of the things we talked about. Like there was a lot of debate at, or not debate. There was there was lively conversation at this conference about like mm-hmm. what exactly does mindfulness mean. Um, the way we use it in our research is in terms of a characteristic that it is attention that is focused on the present moment and mm-hmm. that's um, non judgmental. So really rooted in what's happening currently without the judgments that we have, the evaluations of this is good or bad. Um, and that really those two prongs are critical. Um, so some focus more on the attentional element, like where are you are you thinking about the now or the the past or the future, um, and some focus more on the the kind of compassion acceptance piece of it. But really, all of the emerging evidence suggests that those are both like critical parts of mindfulness together. And a significant part of that compassion is giving yourself a little grace, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Instead of yeah. that I should be doing or I didn't do yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's an important piece of it for sure. Mm-hmm. I want to take a moment to to talk about life off campus mm-hmm. now. We we talked about some of your childhood trajectory. And of course, before we got in here, you were sharing about your two little kids who yeah. now find themselves in an environment not unlike yours, right? Because yeah. mm-hmm. both of their parents yeah. are yeah. academics. So mm-hmm. what is life away from the CSU campus? Like, what do you do for fun as a, for instance, hobbies, et cetera? Um, I would like more hobbies. (laughs) So my husband is, um, has always been really enriched by hobbies. He's an athlete, a triathlete, marathon runner, really. And I, I envy the, like, the re- how much rewarding stuff he gets out of that. And I was like, I don't have it. I don't have enough hobbies. I do like to cross stitch, okay, um, right. which yeah. sounds um, like the, that feels like it, it brings up images of people of many, many decades uh-huh. ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but in like snarky cross stitching in particular, okay. um, <laughs> feminist cross stitching, um, <laughs> but find it very soothing and calming. Um, that's probably the only hobby I have. 
um, and don't have a lot of time for it. With there are two kids at home. There are two kids at home. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is I have so I have a two year old and an almost eight year old. And remember, with the older one, this this stage in particular being particularly challenging okay. for um, engaging in in hobbies like that that are. That take a lot of time and you really can't do it together as a family, for sure. instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but try and get outside, bike a lot. This summer, um, we well, we decided over spring break of last year that we were going to bike as a family to all of the parks in Fort Collins, which – Any guesses how many parks – not school parks, but like this, how many city parks there are in Fort Collins? Any guesses? More than 40? Yep. Wow. There are more than 40. Wow. More than 50? There are exactly 50. Well, there <laughs> wow. were at the time. I think there are some that are under construction, but so there are yeah. 50 parks. And so we were Man, like, before, we called it all before fall. That was our, that my husband came up with that clever <laughs> rhyme. Um, but all before fall was our goal from March to then like mid August. And so we biked all 50 parks. Wow. Um, That's in a the city. It was, yeah. it was, a, it was really, uh, we made, I made a like scrapbook of, which I'm not a scrapbooker in general, but this mm-hmm. was probably the first scrapbook I've ever made. Um, but made one other time and my two-year-old we she props it up each day and likes to look through and see like no where who are we there oh How look cool there was my doll that? um it was absolutely and who i mean like we live in a place that has 50 high quality yeah. well-maintained parks all over the city so that was i feel like doing things like that are as a family are are pretty cool and to live in a place where we can do that we can safely bike mm-hmm. the weather is good enough for it and we've got these resources so we're trying to come up with something for the next summer that will be of similar type of thing it's hard to come up with a how creative yeah it's hard to beat that it is hard to be like well should we do it again we did and that doesn't even include the school parks which are many people is are available to anyone when it's not school time so i'm like we could just do school parks but you could definitely do that what was your favorite out of the the 50 um i think maybe just because of some recency effects the very last park that we went to was traverse park Mm. um but it had some things i'd never seen before and it was just it was really great so my i've my soon-to-be eight-year-old turns um, eight in uh, like two weeks, and she's asked to have her birthday party there. So that was a big hit for us. There's yeah. also Troutman Park yeah, um, has a beautiful lake, yeah. and not just a lake. It has um, like the the park area is separated from the lake by a couple of stones in um, some foliage, mm-hmm. which feels like a cave, <laughs> and it's very exciting for little ones to go back and forth. So that feels like a little magical. Yeah. Being on top of the actual park. What's so fun? those are probably my two favorites. That's awesome. So so we want to talk a little bit about the uh, professional environment, which we, we find ourselves in. Of course, you've already uh, given the plug to the college. But yeah. College of Health and Human Sciences, mm-hmm. uh, what you like best about being a faculty member in that college? The level of support, being good colleagues, again, valuing people as whole human beings mm-hmm. is like un paralleled i think at at research institutions like this not that i i say that like i've investigated every institution (laughs) and um around us but certainly have have been exposed to many including where i was undergrad but other places um or grad student mainly and i just feel like we are that is a really unique characteristic of where we live and work um and i it just i think it makes work here just amazing. I mean, I feel like we're so lucky to work in an environment where we get supported truly to be in- amazing researchers and teachers and clinicians, but that is not where the support stops. And so that's my, I feel like I just, I'm so grateful for my colleagues in the department and the college for that, for that approach. Very well said. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. 
So, of course, our college is embedded within this broad institutional structure in Colorado State University, above all things, is a land-grant institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, top to bottom, this institution takes that promise, that commitment, mission very Mm -hmm. seriously. So what does it mean to Rachel to be a faculty member at a land-grant institution? That's an interesting question because I had never heard the words land grant until uh-huh. I came here. So I and people use that a lot, and yeah. I I feel yeah. like I definitely there were a couple of times when I did the like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then go home and start to be like, what exactly is a land grant institution? But I think so. It's been a learning process for me. It's been interesting to talk to other people who've done most of their training at land grant institutions, and it feels like baked into them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like for me that that process has led to just this real. Focus on extension even more than application and and that one of the things I liked about my grad program was that it was a very applied program. And so it was really thinking about the implications of our work for people's real lives. But to see that taken to even the next step and that this is really every one of us is really interested in improving our communities and being part of a a university that's committed to that. I think that's where I've landed. That's where I feel like if you asked me to define it, I still don't know that I would have the best uh, textbook definition of it. But that's what it's meant to me in practice. And I feel like I've really enjoyed being a part of that. Yeah. And your work defines it. I was like, just that's, about to say the that's same the biggest thing. Piece. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's the beauty is, you know, when things are in sync, mm-hmm. your mission, your commitment, your vision for your scholarship is so well aligned with, with the institutional one. It's, mm-hmm. you know, adolescent mental health is not a problem that's isolated to little pockets. Absolutely. It's not yeah. merely an urban problem by mm-hmm. any stretch of mm-hmm. the imagination. Yeah. We have the opportunity in the state to both address urban challenges, yeah. but also rules. Mm-hmm. Minoritized populations, yeah. right? Tribal populations, mm-hmm. right? Where we, again, the, the access mm-hmm. to care can be a problem. So, uh, yeah, I, I would second Avery. Your, your work embodies yes the land grant mission in, in really powerful ways it's neat to see so and within that i have one more question yeah. so what is the one thing that people need to know about your research and how does it impact our communities oh that's a, that's a good it's a big that's, one. <laughs> that's a big question um but a great question let's see so what is one thing um i think that i guess my my answer to that question i what occurs to me is thinking it from a, a mentorship perspective? Like what might someone want to know who is interested in maybe coming here or working with me? And I think that what what comes to my mind is ever evolving, like that a line of research that is driven by genuine curiosity and hope to help to make a difference, um, but that that involves constant reflection on what's happening and what's the next step and what can we be doing better and what don't we know yet. But I think I hope that energy carries me across the career. And I I hope then that again that there's an I really hope that we can in the long term have an impact on communities that matter and again thinking about adolescents broadly, so high school students and our community and around the country, but also those older adolescents, college students who are really struggling and I hope we can really make a difference with it again. I hope that my legacy feels like a big word, but I I feel like I really hope that making a difference on the next generation of um, scholars in particular and teachers and clinicians is is where I've also made a big impact. That's if great. I'm looking back in 30 years, that's what I hope. Yes. Great. Well, thanks a ton for carving some time yeah. out of your day to come chat with us. We are appreciative. 
Happy to. Yeah. Thank thanks. you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one, two, and three. And if you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.